Welcome to the City Collective Church Podcast. We believe we are better together and exist to create space for everyone to discover life in Jesus. We hope that in today's message, you encounter the heart of God and are challenged and inspired in your relationship with Christ. Over the course of the past three weeks, this is the fourth week of the series, the final week of the series, we're talking about mental health uh, and ups and downs of life and the impact upon our mental health. We called the series Snakes and Ladders, and it felt apt perhaps in the past year where I uh, Things are going up, going up, going up, and then they seem to fall out underneath us and they have an impact upon us in a way that is often uh, extremely meaningful and an ongoing. Uh, We've had conversations this year around mental health that are relationship-driven. So week one, we talked about family. Uh, we, we did a little poll at the beginning of that sermon of who's had a family relationship that they feel or they could say has maybe impacted their mental health to a degree. Everyone's hand went up. We're all in solidarity. Sometimes family is just hard. And, and there's a reality that we have to face in the midst of that, but an invitation we're given as well. Uh, week two, we talked about the idea of loneliness and actually the challenge perhaps being as followers of Jesus that we don't know how to be alone and the challenge within that. And then uh, this past week, we, did, we continued in that conversation. We actually had uh, Paul, who's, who's a registered counselor, share with us a little bit around the idea of uh, toxic relationships. And he provided a little bit of a framework for us before we considered what the Bible had to say about toxic relationships and how we engage with it in a way that Jesus does. That sometimes we consider the idea of Jesus to simply be nice. And that that Jesus would just be, be nice to everyone and he would just turn the other cheek in a way that was abusive to himself. But in fact, when you look at the Gospels and you look at the story of Jesus, there is consistent moments where there is a decision made where Jesus walks away, creates a little bit of separation, And it was understanding the relationship that was taking place. We don't give up on people, but we have wisdom in relationships. And we're wrapping up our our series today. And and we're going to be talking around the idea of of grief and the pursuit of of happiness. And I I think they they go hand in hand. Uh, One of the things that I've recognized for myself is that uh, I can be avoidant of, of a variety of things, conflict, um, feeling a lot of emotions, even though I did a test recently that said I've got a lot of emotions, whether or not I express them, I got them. And, and even when I can be a little bit avoidant of wanting to experience the, the fullness of, of grief, and it, it caused me to pause and even consider what's the question of why around that? Why, why do I respond in such a way? Um, is, it, is it just my, my nature? Is it, is it something that has been nurtured into how I respond? Is it a belief of self? Is it a societal impact? I know there's a variety of different things that are at play. But here's the reality. In the human experience, grief is inevitable because loss is part of humanity. And we are given a gift in a Savior God who understands what it means to grieve. In Isaiah 53, verse 5, it states that Jesus would be a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. It says that that Jesus wept. 
And that's not just your easy answer to recite a verse if someone asks you, can you do that on the spot? You can say that, yeah, and Jesus wept, and you'd be correct. But I also think it's a revelation of the incarnation of Christ, 100% God, 100% man taking place, that Jesus wept. And this isn't meant to be mere emotionalism or uh, shallow sentimentality. It is a reminder that we are cared for and loved by God. There, there, there are three times in Scripture where Jesus wept. John eleven thirty five, Luke nineteen forty one, Hebrews five seven to nine refers to it. And each of these moments is in reference to the end of Jesus's life. And I think that's significant because relationships had taken place, experiences had happened, and the weight of life was experienced by by God in man to the point where the response was a very human reaction of tears, of grief of mourning and of weeping. In Hebrews 4.15, it says he truly is touched with the feelings of our infirmities. His tears are a reminder that he loves us. And that's a great place to start when we consider the idea of grief. For for myself, when I reflect on the idea of grief, uh, I think the most recent experience that I've had where that was very much at the forefront was, was the passing of my grandfather. And this has been a, a few years now. Uh, my grandpa, an amazing legacy that he leaves, uh, my, my grandfather on my mom's side, was the first to come from India to Canada. Uh, he saw an ad in a newspaper, put his, his application in and was one of, of thousands upon thousands that was chosen. And he, and he came, his, came out to British Columbia and, and he worked in the mines of Sparwood, BC. If you've ever done the trek through BC and you've taken a specific route, maybe you've crossed through Sparwood and you've seen the giant truck. That's, what that's, that's the famous point for, for Sparwood that sits on their, their front area as you cross on through. And, and he was in an area that didn't really speak English, and nobody was, was of the same uh, culture as, as my grandpa when he moved, but he, he made, a, made a way for himself and uh, raised the funds and eventually brought his family over and my mom and, and her, her brothers. And, and that was kind of like the beginning of the story. And, and I, I, I sat down with my grandfather before he passed, and I, I did something that I'm so grateful that, that I, I took time to do, and I asked him questions. And I began to just appreciate, it even on an even more deeper level, just the sacrifice that was involved for him to come and, in many ways, be part of the reason that I, I have a family here, uh, that we are able to gather as a church. There, there, there's so many ways in which God brings us together throughout the generations. I had a really special relationship with my grandfather. Uh, he was 60 years old. He turned 60 on the day I was born. So we shared the same birthday, June 13th. And so uh, every year was, it was the celebration of both of our birthdays. Of course, he, uh, he wanted to celebrate mine a little bit more growing up. But there was a variety of different things that we shared. And it was a, it was a beautiful part of our relationship, just knowing even the simple fact, oh, yeah, we, we share that same birthday. And so the year that I was about to turn 30, um, my grandpa was about to turn 90, and he, and he passed. And, and it, was, it was heartbreaking. We were out here when we got the news, and it was, uh, it was devastating. Uh, whether, or not, whether or not someone is, is older or not, there's, uh, there's deep 
and meaningful connection that you establish with people in your life, and it is the breaking of a bond, it feels like, and it hurts, and, and you feel it. it, it it's, it's, like, it's like the snapback of a string pulled tight. It stings, and you grieve, and, and you do your best to move through it. And I, even as I, I reflect on it, it's been a, couple, a few years now, uh, there was one, one, one of the things that always draws my grandfather back to my mind is uh, mango. So my grandpa loved mango, and I shared this love. But he, like my grandfather was always all about like, giving to his, his grandkids and to, to be able to like, be fa- family in those moments. But if mango was on the line, you were setting aside a plate for him, and he was most likely not sharing it, except with me, because he knew how much I loved it. And so we would, we would, we would engulf ourselves in mango, and we would enjoy it. And so every time I, I have a, like, even a little bit, I'm reminded of my grandfather, and it's a little bit of grief that, that pops up, but also a smile of, of a memory shared. And, and I, I share this with you because I just, I want, I want us to understand, like, grief is, it is inevitable, it is consistent, we all experience it. And even for a moment like that, where, where mango draws back to a memory, I think grief is, is a window into what we prioritize, into what we value. Grief, in fact, I think can be an incredibly beautiful experience that moves us forward into who we are called to be as, as followers of Jesus, but even just as human beings. It is a window. And I think this is even seen in the life of Jesus. So let's look at it. Luke chapter 19, verses 41 to 44, it says this. It says, as Jesus approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and circle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. And when you read the scripture, perhaps you can, you can feel a sense of judgment about it. I want to be very clear. When we're reading it, Understand the emotional relationship at the very beginning of the passage that it said, first and foremost, Jesus wept. He's grieving over a lost opportunity that he was not received by the people of Jerusalem. He was not received by the people of Israel and he was grieving the lost opportunity for peace that he desired for his city. Jesus' grief in that window, in that moment, is a window into what he values and he prioritizes. You see what I'm saying? That we're, we're, we, this is how grief is actually a, a revealing emotion for us. Jesus is acquainted with grief. But I believe this, to be acquainted with grief is to know 
how hard and difficult it is. And in turn, if we believe God to be a loving God, if we believe Jesus to be full of love and grace for us, I would believe that Jesus desires us to be happy. And and here, I think, is where the conversation can get a little bit muddy, especially if you've experienced this uh, kind of conversation in church before. I think sometimes we say, like, God wants you to be blessed, uh, but not happy. Or God doesn't want you to be happy. He wants you to be holy. Uh, These kind of statements are, 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 are quick to sometimes make their way around. But my challenge to that is, Does that message that God doesn't want us to be happy actually promote the good news of happiness that is presented in Scripture? Isaiah 52, 27 says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. When we separate God from happiness, I think we actually undermine the Christian worldview. Many people I've talked with can create a, distinct, a distinction in Scripture or even in just conversation between happiness and joy. And yes, I think that there is an understanding to be found there, but far, off, far more often than it should take place, we just simply substitute joy when in fact the words like happiness, like gladness, like merriment, like delight and pleasure are very godly words of what God actually desires for you. I want you to hear this this morning, and let's start from here. God wants you to be happy. The problem lies not in happiness, but in the elevation of the pursuit of happiness. Have you, have you seen uh, the Will Smith, Will Smith movie? The, the Pursuit of Happiness. It's a great movie. Uh, dad who's fighting for his son that wants a better life for him and his family. He shows up for an interview and, and he, he has the, the worst interview outfit but the best interview banter you could have ever experienced or imagined. And, and, it, and it's a great moment in the movie and you feel the emotions of it and you're celebrating with him and you're hoping and you're believing with him. And it's this idea of the pursuit of happiness which is almost part of our cultural ethos. And even if we look at, at the, the language that's used often within uh, the, the wider culture, if we look at the American uh, Declaration of Independence, it says, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And we're, we're not Americans, but man, we are impacted by that culture in a lot of different ways. And I think that even the idea of the pursuit of happiness, the elevation of it, has infiltrated its way into the very walls of the church. We've we've decided that the pursuit of happiness is a good thing, sure, but it's not the ultimate thing. And, and, And far too often we've placed it as such and the cost of making the pursuit of happiness the ultimate is high. So let's define it. Let's put, let's put some words to it. Uh, if we're just simply just to call what is happiness, it's the emotional state of feeling good. I think that's what we would identify it as a society. And that's how we would say it is to feel happy. The problem with the pursuit of this feeling is the blind cost that it would, it would invoke. So I want you to consider this. 
Um, are there things in your life that you believe are necessary to do even though it doesn't make you happy? If, if, if your child ends up in a hospital, would you not go because it doesn't make you happy? Children in hospitals, it's a heavy, it's a saddening experience. So why go if it's going to cause you unhappiness? Because it matters. Because your child, they, they matter to you. We're, we're confronted with countless decisions that cause us unhappiness, and yet we endure it because it matters. And, and I found this to be the case, that often that which matters, often that which we are forced to endure, is often at the cost of our happiness. And, and in the reality of it, it's often just the tip of the iceberg of what it's going to cost. What are, what are the equivalencies of happiness in our society? Money, status, time, it, it, all those things, they, they are equated to what happiness actually provides. But in a moment where you believe you are doing something that actually matters, how quickly we are to give those things up. I think that we believe up here in our, in our minds more often than not that the pursuit of happiness is what I'm just doing in my life. But the way that we're living, the way that we're wired, the way that our souls are actually craving to do things that are meaningful and purposeful in our world actually puts the equivalencies of happiness on the altar of meaning and matter and purpose. Those are the sacrifices. Those are the things that we give up. And I think it's actually a good thing. The problem lies in our mental state that we make the decision that I am going to live a life that simply pursues happiness. Hear me. God wants you to experience happiness because he loves you. But happiness is not our purpose, nor is it your purpose. God desires to fill your life with things that matter. Faith, family, mission, purpose. I, I, I want all of our collective kids, kids <laughs> to be happy. I want them to know the extravagant love of God and, and, and be bathed in the happiness that comes from relationship with Jesus that I wholeheartedly believe in. But I also know that avoidance of difficulty would be the avoidance of reality. And we have subtly engaged with something that feels right, pursuing happiness, not understanding the cost of its prioritization. When the pursuit of happiness holds a position of authority and one of decision-making in your life, it does, a, it does a number on the reality of life. It does this. It makes grief feel like failure. It makes sadness an evil or negative emotion instead of a revealing therapeutic one. It makes tears tools of shame instead of conduits of healing. 
And some of you need to hear this this morning. Happiness is not your purpose and grief is not a failure. We are invited by the Savior of the universe to grieve for that which we are needing to grieve over. If Christ does it, how much more do I need to be doing it? That is the path we're invited to follow, not simply to experience life and to push it through and to have optimism and to to say nice things and to have good feelings. No, Jesus himself experienced the fullness of desiring something in his values and his priorities and his vision, and he grieved when he didn't see it take place. It did not stop him from moving forward. In fact, I would say it compelled him to greater and further action. Christ comes into the world because he wants something better. But to want something better means that he has grieved something that was lost. So in fact, the response of heaven to demonstrate the love of God through the person of Jesus upon the cross is the response of grief over something that was lost in relationship with you and I. So if we know these things... You need to experience your grief for what it is if you are going to do what God wants you to do. They are hand in hand. Receive the fullness of happiness. Just don't make it your purpose. Enjoy the goodness of God and be happy in it. But that is not your purpose. There's more to life than this. So if happiness is not our purpose, I think the question that we are led to, that what is our our motivation, right? Because if you have a purpose, that's something that drives you forward. It gives you a motivation on how you act. Motivation is a powerful thing for our, our whole being, for our behavior as well as our mind. We're talking about our mental health. And when I think about purpose and I try and boil it down, purpose feels like a very spiritual, high-minded word, and motivation seems a little more tangible and practical. So we're going to look at that for a moment. When we look at the idea of motivation, I think there's a lot of great ideas even in science that we find today. In 2018, researchers, they did a study around motivation in sport. Uh, Empirically, anecdotally, I think we can conclude on our own that motivation is a key determinant of behavior. You are motivated, therefore you act. You feel a motivation driven by an experience, by a loss, by, by a failure, and you act in a certain way out of it. If we even like consider well-known stories, I think all of us know to some degree uh, the story of Michael Jordan. The Michael Jordan, he, he didn't make his high school basketball team, and then he becomes the greatest basketball player uh, of his generation. I'm not going to say all time because I have an opinion on that, but... <laughs> You know that story. There's a story of of Muhammad Ali that at 12 years old, he had his bike stolen and he made a decision that he was never going to have something stolen from him again. And so he learned how to fight and he becomes a world champion. Motivation leads to behavior. I don't don't think there has to be anything dramatically extrapolated out of that for us to identify it. But I would also say that our motivation, it shapes our behavior, but it also shapes our minds. 
And it shapes our, our ability to maintain health in our minds. Researchers from this study in 2018, sorry, uh, they were published in a Frontiers of Psychology paper, and it's a group of Irish researchers, and they concluded this. They concluded that there's a clear connection between motivation and mental health, and that, in fact, a strong, robust mental health is an outcome of good and healthy motivation. So if, if grief is a window into the values of our life, I think motivation is a window into our mental health. And, and we have made the mistake of making our motivation happiness. Like I said, God wants you to be happy. But happiness isn't just the central pursuit. Why? Because personal happiness is often a self-serving endeavor, and the call of Christ is self-sacrifice. Personal happiness is often a self-serving endeavor, and the call of Christ is self-sacrifice. The right motivation leads to a more robust health, uh, mental health. And a more robust mental health often leads to a more meaningful and fulfilling life and a purposeful life. I, I think we've all experienced that. When we, we feel healthy in our mind, we feel like we can do more in our day. We feel like we can, we can impact relationships and have a greater impact upon the world around us in a way that we feel like we're called and we're, we're, we're shaped to be. Personal happiness as our motivation, it might have some of these elements that we, we desire. Kindness and generosity, unfailing pursuit and purpose. But those are fleeting and, and they don't maintain and they don't develop. And, and they come in moments and in blips, but they're easily overcome by the struggles of life. But it is the call of Jesus to self-sacrifice that is purposeful, that is unfailing, that is kind, that is generous. If you're looking for the path to find health in your mind so that you can find purpose and meaning in life, Start by looking at the life of Jesus. Look at the call that he invites us into. He wants you to be happy, but he understands the way that we're actually wired. If, if everything in my life is about a self-serving endeavor, happiness, happiness might come in a moment, but it's not going to sustain through the struggle. You are meant for more than simply making yourself happy. And extremely savagely, that is what our culture says is the pursuit of our life. And we're quick to do things that simply make us happy that might appear to be generous or kind. That is the social media generation. We want to be, we want to be four people. So uh, a controversy pops up and uh, we'll make an uh, Instagram post. And we like the way that it might present ourselves to others or communicate something that we've just, we thought at one time. But there's no real action around it because there's no real sacrifice within it. Do you see, this, do you see the problem with making the pursuit of happiness our motivation? It never leads to self sacrifice and therefore it never actually looks like Jesus 
happiness is, is not turning God into a genie who grants every wish, nor is it a constant state of comfort. Happiness is a byproduct of a life of self-sacrifice. And I think we see that in the life of Jesus. It comes from living a life that is founding its motivation in something more than my own personal happiness. And I truly believe this, that a simple commitment of our mental health is a genuine commitment to the way of Jesus. I believe that we need to be going to places of counseling and having meaningful conversations. I believe that we need to be having conversations with family and and having those moments that are are meaningful in in nature or in something that you do that you really enjoy. Do things that make you happy. I'm for those things. But if you want to have truly robust mental health in all these different spaces, include, make it central, your relationship with Jesus. Don't isolate it. We're not saying to stay in your your room and pray all day and then just think that's going to be. You're meant to be out in the world. You're meant to be full of purpose. You're meant to be used by God in a meaningful and powerful way. Just don't isolate one and isolate the other. Do it together. That's how you're designed. It's how you're created. It's what God wants for you. And then live into the happiness that comes on that journey. Happiness is in God's nature. We don't need to be serious as often as we are about who God is. We are burdened with sometimes this belief that God is so serious and it's our duty to to be just like that before him. Yes, we need reverence. Yes, we need to be in awe before a loving God. But there is scripture after scripture where it says God rejoices over us. So how much more should that be our response? If the nature of God is happiness, we should be living in that truth. And there are going to be times where life is painful, where a process feels painful, where it feels overwhelming. And the fact that God continues to rejoice over us remains the same even when we can't rejoice. The struggle is not the end of our story. God is not wanting you to be miserable in order to make you holy. That is, that is not the way of Jesus. But he wants you to start to move in that direction of learning to be like him. You can, you can feel God's excitement for you. I want, I want you to hear these words. This is God declaring it. Saying that they will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. That's in Isaiah 51. God just doesn't want you to simply feel better. He wants your joy to be everlasting. He wants your gladness and joy to overtake you. Happiness might not come in the way that you've expected or planned for, but it is going to be exactly what you need because it's going to come through a relationship with Christ. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice. Let's give glory to God and be glad in it. Lean fully into happiness. In C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, he talks about happiness. I want you to, um, we're going to put the quote up on the screen. I think it's really powerful. It's a great book, by the way, if you've never read it for yourself. He says, God cannot give us happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. 
the happiness which God designs for his higher creatures, for, for, his, for humanity, is the happiness of being freely, voluntarily united to him and to each other in an ecstasy of love and delight, compared with which the most rapturous love between a man and a woman on earth is mere milk and water. I think that beautifully articulates it. To be with God is to be on this path of discovering real happiness. So as, as we close this series on mental health, we're going to take communion together. Um, you'll, you'll have the communion elements with you at your seats. I, I want you to hear this call with me. We've talked about relationships, and we've talked about all the different ways in which we understand how we need to be intentional in dealing with the difficulties of life. And sometimes the idea of mental health and faith can seem very primitive and archaic. And in reality, I, I believe that when we look at the teachings of Jesus and when we look at the scriptures, we actually find a holistic and generous approach that identifies who we are and how we've been created and invites us to discover that in every space that we're in. I think science has shown us that we are incredibly complex beings. You are complex. If someone says that, man, I'm just a simple person, you're actually incredibly complex. There's a lot of layers to your onion. And it's a good thing. It's a beautiful thing. It's because you're made in the image of God. It's because you're loved by, by this, the Savior of the universe. Our experiences, our relationships, they deeply impact us. Our thoughts, our intentions, our motivations, they don't just simply lead to actions, but they shape our minds. And I know we in inherently desire happiness, but grief comes to each of us. But like I said, grief is not failure. The pursuit of happiness is not our purpose. And the motivations that we set in our life can be transformational to our mind. And allow me to offer this to you this morning. I am more convinced than ever that Jesus is the way. And to follow that way is going to cost everything. But in Christ, we find everything. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to engage in a time of uh, communion. So worship team, would you just join me in the front as I begin to pray? So Father, we give you thanks for where we find ourselves this morning. For those in the room that are experiencing grief, thank you that you are one who grieves with us. That you are our co-suffering Savior that you are well acquainted with grief, and to even know that you are there beside us in the midst of it, let that be comfort for our weary souls. And for, for every bit of our lives that seems to be geared towards simply the pursuit of happiness, we repent, God. We want to be more like you. May the compulsions of society not override the call of Christ. And I just pray for every single one of us this morning that you would begin to shape us into your image, that we would move from our self-serving endeavors into self-sacrificial ones, 
And in those spaces, may our hearts experience the joy of happiness that comes in running and walking and learning and teaching and serving with you. May we be shaped from the inside out. For every word and every idea and every thought that's been spoken in these last four weeks about our mental health, thank you that it comes from you. And we just pray right now that it would solidify within our hearts, that it would not just be good ideas, but it would hit us at a level of our heart so that it begins to move us to action. It would move us to to reflection. It would move us to conversation, that this would be the beginning point for a year in which our church family would discover health in our mental state, that we would discover healing in our mental places, that we discover joy in our, in our mental places, that on all the things that we sometimes isolate away from church and from faith, thank you that you're coming in and between and at the center of it all. And then as you become at the center, thank you that we can lean on you in the midst of it. Begin to shape us and transform us. Thank you that this is your gift that you give to us each and every single day. Let these words become something that sinks into our heart, that begins to move us towards you and shape us in your image. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's message. We hope it challenged, encouraged, and inspired you in your walk with our Lord Jesus Christ. To keep up with City Collective, make sure to check us out on Instagram and Facebook at City Collective Church. Have a great week.